Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we chatted about the coronavirus, discussed the biggest race in Illinois' upcoming primary, and learned about exploitation by tech companies. All this plus the Trump Diaries, AWCYFM, and Size Matters, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for March 13, 2020. Jamie chatted with University of Chicago Biosafety Officer Alan Helm about the coronavirus outbreak. Helm discussed what COVID-19 is, the ways people can protect themselves, and how worried they should be about a pandemic currently raging around the globe. Radio Free Bridgeport with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. I think everybody has been following the news. Uh, It has gotten increasingly scary about the COVID-19 virus, the coronavirus that has made its way through China, Italy, Iran, and now into our country. Uh, There are now 17 confirmed cases here in Illinois. Uh, You may have seen this morning that New York State actually walled off the city of New Rochelle in an effort to contain the virus, and California has declared a state of emergency. We wanted to try to talk to someone who uh, deals with bugs in the laboratory and has some kind of uh, insight into biosafety, because candidly, uh, those of us here at Radio Free Bridgeport have no idea about anything about this. So I'm really pleased to welcome the University of Chicago's Alan Helm. He's the biosafety officer over there. Welcome, Alan. How are you doing? Hey, Jamie, how are you? I'm great. So let, let's start with the basics. Uh, obviously, this has been a major story for, what, two, three weeks here now? What, what is the coronavirus? I mean, you deal with viruses in the lab all the time. Can you tell us a little bit about exactly just what this is so people have an idea? Sure. But um, first, I think I'll preface this by saying that uh, I'm not a virologist right. by, 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 by training. I'm a bacteriologist. Uh, but I've been in the biosafety field at the University of Chicago for 10 years. Okay. And um, so part of that job is is learning about things that maybe you didn't have in your previous you know, education. So I have, you know, done some crash courses in virology. Okay. And, and basically your job is to keep people safe in a laboratory setting. Is that, that correct? That's right. We've, we've got a lot of labs that are using a lot of uh, 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 biological hazards, any, anywhere from uh, uh, pathogenic microbes up to, uh, you know, things like a recombinant DNA and things like that. Now, why, just not to get too far sure. off track, but why would the University of Chicago have these things there. Isn't this dangerous? It is dangerous. Um, and it's not just University of Chicago, but any research institution is going to be doing uh, a decent amount of uh, work with microbes okay. or, or biological hazards because that's the only way to figure them out. Okay, I see. We wouldn't have a vaccine for smallpox if nobody ever handled smallpox. I got you. So the idea is basically to have these things in a safe setting, which is your job, and then scientists can take them apart and kind of figure out what makes them tick. Exactly right. Gotcha. Okay. So people shouldn't be worried about this conversation that we're having. The University of Chicago does have bacterial agents and viruses on its shelves. But that is not something that people at large should panic about. No, because uh, we have a good biosafety program in place. And anytime you work in a laboratory, uh, not only are there biological issues, but there are chemical issues. Some labs use radiation. Some use lasers. And um, our university, like most universities, um, we have people with expertise, like in biology and the chemical safety guys have, uh, have, have expertise in chemicals. Our radiation safety and laser safety people have expertise in that. Um, so the idea is to keep the risk as close to zero as possible okay. while allowing the research to take place in a safe way. That's, that's really good because I think sometimes when um, discussions like this start, and I, I've heard it on other 
you know, media outlets, there's this kind of what? They have what there? You know, and so there's yep. this kind of fear factor. Mm-hmm. But I think people do need to understand that that most of these are being handled in a in a safe setting and that there are protocols to make sure that these things don't get into the wild. There are quite a few protocols and safety precautions, but also not only that, is the things that we work on, and it's the same as I would, I would uh, say that Northwestern and, and other large uh, research institutions uh, in, in our area, um, we work on things that are also found in the environment. Like okay. we're not working with exotic things that, that, that would not normally be here. Okay. Now, do you got you guys don't have a coronavirus, a COVID nineteen yet in well, stock? Correct. We do not. Okay. Um, uh, but a real quick. So you you initially yeah. asked me about coronavirus. Well, well, there are quite a few different coronaviruses. Yeah. What is that? So it's it's a class of viruses. It's a family, I think, in the virus uh, nomenclature, um, and and uh, I think they were discovered in the nineteen sixties. Okay. Predominantly, they infect animals. Okay. Um, but uh, in the well, as of I think November or December, we've identified, or the virologists have identified seven of them okay. that will also infect that will infect humans. Okay. Now, four of those coronaviruses are basically the common cold. Right. We would we would call that a risk group two. Risk group two agents they uh, they they if you're healthy, they'll get you sick, but you'll usually recover or they're treatable. Uh, and you know, then and then you're you know, then then you're then you're fine. Then you're fine. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly right. So, um, but in the last since 2002, we have they have identified three of them that are a little more severe. Okay. In 2002, uh, they recognized SARS. Okay. Right. Now, which risk group is that? Just that would be three. Okay. So three. So 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 there's four risk groups. Mm-hmm. Number one will not get you sick at all. Okay. If you've ever had a beer, you've drank uh, uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Of course. Mm-hmm. Which is which is risk group one. It will not hurt a healthy adult with a good immune system. Right. Okay. Risk group two, as I said already, if you're healthy, uh, most uh, you don't have any pre any conditions, you'll recover. Risk group three or more severe. Even if you're healthy, they have the potential to be fatal. Okay. But they're usually treatable or the fatality rate is low. Okay. And then the highest is number four. Number four are bugs that will get you sick and will very possibly kill you, and there's not too much they can do about it. Now, With, the, but why yeah. isn't, just to interject here, we've been told that the current COVID 19 coronavirus is not treatable. Why isn't it in a higher risk group then? That, that's a great question. Uh, because the fatality rate that we're seeing is, is, is relatively low. Okay. And also that fatality rate appears to be in people that are either, you know, that, that, that are on, you know, I think we're right now what the data are showing is that it's uh, usually older people or people with other uh, maybe respiratory conditions or suppressed right. immune systems. So that's why it would be in three. Okay. It's not, and, and there, you might not be able to treat the virus per se, but there is treatment for the symptoms. Gotcha. Okay. okay. So let's let's get back to this because this yeah. is this is actually really fascinating. So the the coronavirus and the, the virus that we're talking about right now, this COVID nineteen strain mm-hmm. that, that there is a, a great deal of uh, interest and concern about, is a strain that was. Discovered in the 1960s, it was previously in other species. Yeah. Excuse not- me, real quick. The COVID 19 strain was not discovered then. I'm sorry, the coronavirus. The cor- yes, that's right. The family of coronaviruses, okay. to my understanding, were discovered in the 60s. And now this this current COVID 19 strain, we believe it came from another species, and then was transmitted to, to human beings. Correct. And I believe, I, according to some of the reporting we've seen from China, they they believe it may have come from bats. That's my understanding. Yeah, that's my understanding. So, what if I can back up just for a second? Because this is always—I know you're not a virologist, yep. but viruses are in our DNA. We have viruses all through us. Why is it that some viruses 
affect us and make us sick. And then other viruses, they seem like the little androids of the world. You know what I mean? They're, they're almost right. not even alive. Yeah. What is it that they do that is so harmful and so dangerous to well, us? Well, what they do is, is, as you pointed out, viruses, and it depends on who you ask, many, many uh, hard true biologists would say they're not living organisms because they cannot replicate on their own. Okay. They require a host. They have to get into a host cell. They have the genetic material. They have the blueprint to make more copies of themselves, but they can't do anything by themselves. They require a cell which has all the, all the machinery needed to make new things. They have to attach to that cell, deliver their genetic material into that cell, and often the cell doesn't know the difference. It's like, okay, I'm going to make this and this. And before the cell knows it, the cell has made multiple copies of this given virus, and then each of those viruses escape and repeat the, the process. A lot of times that's not a big deal, but it can be a big deal when it, they're important cells. And it's like a cuckoo taking over a nest in a weird it's, way. It's, it's, exactly, it's exactly what it is. Huh. Yep. Okay. So this virus, you know, I think we've kind of gotten a breakdown of what class it is. Mm-hmm. What, I, I guess the, the, the $100,000 question is, how is this new virus transmitted and are people right to be so worried about it from a a kind of a biological safety point of view so uh, the data are still coming in you know it's very interesting like new even new papers are coming in well initially new 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 publications were coming out like in in legitimate journals every day now it seems like every week um so but based on the data um, that i've read and by the way, I'm getting most of my information from the World Health Organization, the CDC, which is still putting out really good information. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm getting this information. It looks like uh, the routes of transmission are um, uh, respiratory droplets. Okay. Let's say someone has it, and, and it does like your respiratory system. You cough, you sneeze. they are droplets in the air. Now, droplets are a little different from aerosols. Aerosols are very, 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 very tiny, and they actually just hang out in the air. The only way an aerosol usually will leave the room is through the building ventilation system. It appears, at least from the data so far, that uh, COVID-19 doesn't really spread by that true aerosol route, but it's droplets. And droplets can expel, I think what I've read, up to six feet. Okay. So, uh, but but let's say if somebody coughs and like two minutes later you walk into the room, you're not going to catch it from the air. Okay, so right. that, that actually means it's not as serious as it could be, correct? Correct. Yes, if it were truly, okay. it, well, and, and it may be, but, but so far, if the data that, that, that I'm seeing are, are right, then, um, yeah, it's not a true aerosol, and that would be a bigger deal. Because let's say somebody sneezed in here, and then somebody comes in 20 minutes later, they could right. potentially inhale it. Right. Okay. The other route uh, appears to be by contact. So let's say somebody sneezes on their hand, they touch the doorknob, right. then I touch the doorknob. And at that point, your skin, first of all, it, it won't go through your skin. Right. Skin's an amazing barrier. Uh, things like that will get in through your mucous membranes, right. which are your eyes, nose, and your mouth. Yeah. So what happens is, let's say somebody sneezes on their hand, they touch the doorknob, then somebody who's not infected touches that doorknob and rubs their eye, rubs their nose, you know, puts it in their mouth and uh, without washing their hands or, or, or sanitizing their hands. Right. And then it can transfer that way. So it's my understanding we're looking at respiratory droplets and contact and direct inoculation of the mucous membranes. Okay, so this is, this is really important. So basically, uh, one, there is some good news about this. The fact is, if it was, a, it, it, again, as you say, the data so far does not suggest it's an aerosol transmission. Mm-hmm. It, that is good news because it means potentially it is less uh, transmissible than it would be. Correct. 
And second, it seems that people can do some fairly straightforward and easy things to protect themselves from it, namely, number one, washing their hands. It really is. Yeah, it, 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 that's, that's, you know, we keep hearing this over and over, mm-hmm. but it really does help. It really does help. And normally I'm not a big advocate of hand sanitizer, ethanol-based hand sanitizer, because nothing, it doesn't remove anything from your hands. Right. It kills certain things, but, 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 but a good hand sanitizer is going to be ethanol-based, uh-huh. and it's going to be at least 60%. Okay. Future reference, 70% is the magic number for alcohol. Okay. If it gets too low, it doesn't work. If it gets too high, it doesn't work very well. 70 is that magic number. So if you got a hand sanitizer that's at least 60%, uh, coronaviruses fall in a, in a group of viruses called enveloped viruses because they have this lipid membrane around them. They have this okay. little fatty... Well, that's fat, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They've got this fatty membrane around them. And if you can trash that membrane, then the virus is dead. Huh. And, and alcohol dissolves fats pretty easily. So hand washing... And, uh, you know, they're saying 20 seconds, you know, and I've looked at some some numbers like, first of all, washing your hands for three seconds is better than not washing your hands at all. Right, right, right. And there's a lot of people that aren't washing their hands that didn't wash their hands before at all that are doing it now. But but apparently there's 20 seconds of hand washing. And and, and, uh, you know, if you have some hand sanitizer, it would help after the fact, because you want to remove the grease and stuff like that from your hands. The soap and water will do that. Yeah. And then the, then the alcohol from the hand sanitizer could uh, clean up. Another cool thing is because these viruses, envelope viruses, they're not compared to other microbes and even other viruses. They're not particularly stable in the environment for very, very long. Okay. And soap kills it. Soap will kill envelope viruses because, again, we're talking about a fatty envelope. Oh, of course. And, and detergent, you know, soap breaks up fats. So, yeah, any kind of detergent, uh, Dawn, for example, yep. when, when birds uh, get caught in environmental disasters, mm-hmm. even, even uh, you know, you can clean seagulls with it to get oil off them because it's an excellent exactly right. dispersal medium. And when you strip the oil off of a coronavirus or other envelope viruses, that it's out of commission. It's done. It That's can't incredible. do anything. <laughs> Chuck Mertz spoke to economist Rob Larson about how Silicon Valley has created monopolies by exploiting user data. Larson talks about the unethical tactics of several major tech companies and how users never made some of the Faustian bargains they suppose. This is Hell airs every Sunday and Thursday at 10. Why or how? How can we stop that kind of process. Can we in some way, because look, you just talked about AT&T and their monopoly was broken up, but now here we are back at the exact same position when it comes to telecommunication. So can network effects be in any way restrained in order to stop this monopolization caused by network effects? Yeah, it's sort of a mixed picture, Chuck, because definitely you can up to a point. Uh, So the classic uh, story in this case, of course, would be Microsoft, right, which got taken to court for its uh, monopolization practices, right? So uh, folks uh, uh, 
maybe aren't familiar with uh, U.S. monopoly laws, right? Uh, in the U.S., we have these uh, pro-competition anti-monopoly laws on the books called our antitrust law, named after the old era of business power when you organize them into trusts, like Standard Oil, as opposed to today's modern corporations. And antitrust law, you know, theoretically, is supposed to prevent monopoly and encourage competition, even in more concentrated markets where you have just a couple of very large players. Like, again, the cell carrier market is a good example of that. Well, antitrust used to be enforced pretty aggressively. So we broke up Standard Oil about a century ago, and indeed AT&T, but AT&T's breakup in the very early 80s was the last time that American antitrust policy went so far as to break up a giant nationwide monopolist. Now, the most recent time they tried, of course, was in the 1990s to break up Microsoft, and I have a chapter on uh, Microsoft in the book there, sort of the original software giant. It's one of the three biggest firms uh, in the U.S. right now. It's a trillion-dollar company. And of course, that's where, where Bill Gates' feel-good foundation money comes from. We take a look. Microsoft had a classic network effects monopoly for computer operating systems. You know, so when you go to work, for the large majority of us, when you use a computer, it's going to be running lousy Windows software and all of its uh, associated suite of applications. Well, in the early '80s, Gates and uh, Microsoft had a big deal to provide the operating system for IBM's PC back when that was dominating the market. And so they gained a monopoly very quickly through the network effect. Software writers, you know, people who make games, web browsers, productivity software like Word and Excel and so on, they want to write that software for the operating system that has the biggest possible audience so they can reach the biggest market, you know. And so that meant they wrote their software to run on Windows. That suite of applications attracts more users to Windows running software like all those PCs. And you get that positive feedback, self-reinforcing process. So under antitrust law, Microsoft's operating system monopoly is not like illegal. It's not legally actionable because they gained it through normal economic processes, through the network effect and the rising value for users as more and more people write more applications for that operating system. What got them in trouble was they used that operating system monopoly to take over another related industry. In this case, uh, in the mid-90s, uh, Gates saw Netscape. Uh, the, early, the very first early web browser that let you search this new internet phenomenon that was brand new at that time. Uh, the, were, Gates was very jealous of its success, and so he started including Internet Explorer, uh, the lousy Microsoft browser, in their uh, Windows updates. And because those updates went on every, almost every computer other than Apple's, of course, uh, it became the huge dominant firm very quickly. That got them in court under antitrust. The Justice Department brought antitrust action against them eventually because it's not illegal to gain a monopoly through legit economics, like the network effect, but it's illegal under antitrust to use your monopoly to take over another industry. It's kind of weird. This is how pro-business American anti-monopoly laws are. Having a monopoly itself isn't necessarily illegal. Using your monopoly to monopolize another industry is where you get in trouble. And just a, another aspect of that question, though, is so you know that antitrust case against Microsoft did succeed. And at the end of the 90s, Microsoft was adjudicated legally to be a monopolist. And that verdict still stands. That was never overturned. Unfortunately, Microsoft appealed the Justice Department's uh, victory and its plan to break up the company into an operating system, an application 
pair of firms. But then during their appeal, uh, the 2000 election happened. Bush comes in under disputed circumstances, shall we say, and his Justice Department dropped its pursuit of breaking up Microsoft into two firms. So we haven't really had a very aggressive antitrust policy that could take on these monopolies, uh, basically since the Reagan revolution and this whole neoliberal era. But also one last thing is it's not, it's not always clear that it's even necessarily desirable to break up these firms because after all, a lot of their value comes from connecting everyone. And so when you have a platform like Facebook, you know, a platform is a web uh, hub that's built up through a very strong and elaborated network effect. When you have sites like Facebook or YouTube, part of their value is that they're more or less monopolies. Anyone with video to post will do it on YouTube. Anyone with an event to share will do it on Facebook because that's where the users and that great online community is. So often when we look at this, and especially with the uh, recent campaigns of Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders, they're sometimes calling for breakup of these firms, but often they're starting to talk about them as utilities, like your local utility company, which have typically have their own monopolies. And so saying, maybe since the value of these firms is their sort of semi-monopoly over their market, bringing everyone together and creating this single hub for everyone to use, maybe it should be brought under public control or be tightly regulated rather than breaking up so that we don't lose the value that is created through the network effect. So there's sort of different ways to look at that. But how difficult would that be? How difficult would it uh, be to turn this private enterprise into a public utility? Because often we hear from people who say, you know, under neoliberalism, certain things have been become uh, have become privatized. To deprivatize those things is a difficult thing, even from things that were public utilities in the past. So how difficult would it be to make things like, uh, you know, Facebook a public utility? Yeah, well, definitely extremely difficult. <laughs> uh, you know, we, if you follow uh, national events, we all know how hard it is. It's hard to get these firms to stop even their most egregious terrible practices, let alone, you know, surrender their incredibly profitable business models to, yeah, extensive regulation or, you know, even being uh, made public property in some way uh, to make them a utility. So it would definitely be a giant struggle. And for a number of reasons, you know, I mean, one is the obvious one. Uh, right now, those uh, big five tech firms, each one of them having a chapter in this book here, uh, they are now some of the biggest lobbying spending firms in the U.S. having surpassed traditional champions like Comcast. Uh, now Google spends, you know, sweet Google with its lovely image, spends millions of dollars lobbying Congress and the executive branch every year, and Facebook as well, and these other big firms, because they want to resist regulation. Or these days, they sort of recognize some regulation is coming one way or another, whether it comes from the Sanders wing or the Trump wing of our national conversation. And so they're trying to steer it toward more friendly, lighter touch uh, regulation. But so turning these firms into a big utility would be definitely difficult because not only do they have that big political spending, but also, I mean, I mean as you would imagine, their ideological power, their ability to shape the ideas that people are presented with is sort of the core of their models. You know, Facebook and Google, above all, on their platforms and on Google's YouTube and Facebook's Instagram, very frequently, I mean, all the time, they tweak their algorithms to uprank or downrank different things. And they always say it's based on purely technocratic algorithm-based criteria. But all the time, we have by now plenty of examples, and they're all on the record, of them making specific not necessarily political decisions, but you know, very strategic decisions about what they want to feature, what they don't want to feature. And of course, 
because these algorithms are completely opaque. We don't know anything about what particular features are showing up on our Facebook newsfeed and stuff. We don't really see any of this stuff going on. So if you Facebook and Google feel very threatened by these sort of political possibilities, it's very easy for them to submerge them and you know, not censor them, just make them harder to find, make them appear much further down people's feeds, you know. So pretty difficult. But then, hell, you know, uh, it's pretty difficult to uh, get a semi-socialist candidate to uh, blow up across the political landscape. And of course, we're all uh, waiting with bated breath as we record this on Stupid Tuesday, but it looks like uh, Sanders is poised to do well. So it shows that even really difficult political projects, you know, uh, we can take them on. There are some possibilities there, even if it's, you know, uh, a steep climb, probably. Size matters, size matters, with Kyle Seismankowski. Hey, looking fly there, Kyle. Is that a unique Monday special? Hey, Jess, I'll have you know this is my musical coat. I'm back in the game. In what game? Are you somehow implying you know the music industry? Jess, 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 Jess. Have you already forgotten about my time spent on Record Row here in Chicago? As you well know, I hobnobbed with all of the greats. That's insane, Kyle. You have less rhythm than a broken dishwasher. I can't help my impetigo. And 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 that wasn't always the case, Jess. Uh, they called me Mr. Hits. I, I wrote all the greats, and uh, you know what? You, it's a good story. You should probably be recording this on your little tape thingy, uh, you know, for my biography. You know, it's funny that you mention that thing. I uh, I pawned that trash back in episode sixty-two. Uh, somehow I've noticed that no matter where we are or what we do, it comes out on tape. It's sort of creeping me out. Uh, that's strange. Are you doing the special effects too? The what? It was the Roaring Fifties. I had a side gig at the Macomba Lounge working with all the greats. Saggy trousers, Harold Howling Piles, and the great Comet Joey Pyrite, king of the jump blues. Each night I emptied ashtrays, felched the spit valves, and cleaned the santorum of the drum thrones. I am 100% sure that didn't happen. For one thing, uh, santorum is completely... You don't know nothing about musical terms, just... And anyway, this is my story. I stand corrected. Continuing from before I was so rudely interrupted. Oh, please, your worship, continue. I was hanging with the best. Rude Minnie Joseph was the queen of the spoons. Wild Allie Johnson tore it up every night with the mouth hop. And Ralphing Bill could puke with the best of them. God bless him. That was a cherished musical act? Jess, if you could belch on command, you could make a dime. Ugh, thank God for SoundCloud. I was the king of motor row. They called me Mr. Hits. Sure, okay. And every day I would collect the monies from all the juke joints in the port and bank them. Right. Life was sweet, but there was one thing I was missing. Self-respect? A hit of my own. Oh, I had tried. I recorded with chess. I recorded with stacks. But nothing seemed to stuck. You are so full of crap. Give me some of the names of these supposed hits. I'm glad you asked. I knew what day is it would be a hit. Uh Uh-huh. And then I thought... My infected piles could make it. Ah, uh-huh. And then I had the bell-bottom bowel blues. Andre Williams helped write that one. All of this sounds awful, with the exception of the first one, which honestly sounds like personal experience. But all that's behind me. I have a new musical group that's going to take me to the top. Um... Behold! Don't sit in the piss 
at the bus stop. Oh, no. Don't sit in the piss at the bus stop. What the fuck? These are geniuses. I never knew they had it in them. Is this song about piss on bus stop seats? Who wants this? Shut the hell up, Jess, and just pay attention. I think you need to cut a track about the bear. I, I think that's going to be your moneymaker. You really think so? I'm not sure. Oh, absolutely. They're already calling us the next ABBA. Jimmy, are you extra high? I don't know, Kyle. I think this absolutely. is pretty... Absolutely. Let's hit it, Tennille. My name is Shanna. Shanna, I'm your wife. Yeah. One, two, three. There's a bear with a box on its head. And he can't get the box off his head. Now the box got stuck and the bear's out of luck. There's a bear with a box on his head. What in the actual... Hey, we already used the bleep once in this episode. Jamie says those are expensive. Kyle, this is awful. And and I love these two. I mean, obviously not Jamie, but it feels mean. No no one is going to buy this. Buy this stuff? What are you talking about? Isn't that how the music business works? Uh, Not now. I figure I could get this pressed and released for one week, and I could lose those guys at least a middle. Scotty up there. Helping me get some wax done too. What? I got a bunch of dudes that need tax breaks and lumpings are non profiting. This is a great way to launder the suds and the paying me in hard, cold cash. So you want it to fail? I sure do. Well, I don't know about Shanna failure, but heck yeah, let's stick it to Trekker. <laughs> That's my gale. There's a bear with a box on touring with Lizzo next month. And for the fifth week in a row, summer novelty hit The Bear with a Box on Its Head is number one on the U.S. and U.K. charts. It's an incredible smash, and here it is for the ninth time today. There's a bear with a box on its head. Jesus. Oh, gosh. Kyle, are you down there? Kyle, is is that you? Be quiet, Jess. I... I just got to hide under the stairs. I, I really fouled up. Oh, oh, not good. Yeah, who knew a song about a dancing bear would make it big? Jessica, Jessica! Coming. Hey, what's going on? Uh, well, they made so much money off that song that I work for them now. Doing what? Please don't ask. Jessica, my glasses need cleaning. And my Velcro shorts need fastening. I'm pretty sure I need hydrating. <sighs> Now the box got stuck and the bear is out of luck. There's a bear with a box on his head. This week on the Trump Diaries, coronavirus is now a pandemic, but Trump is raging about hoaxes, Obama and Democrats. A judge calls Attorney General Barr dishonest, giving the House a major win. Russia continues to stoke division as Putin tries to seize more power. Joe Biden surges and the stock market crashes as Trump fiddles. These are not the end times, but they are the Trump Diaries. Day 1142, March 6th. In a remarkable turn of events, a federal judge said Attorney General William Barr's handling of the Robert Mueller report was distorted and misleading, and that Barr could not be trusted as a result. The judge ordered the Justice Department to privately show him portions of the Mueller report that were redacted, so he could independently verify whether the Justice Department's redactions were appropriate. That suit came in response to an FOI request from BuzzFeed and sets up the possibility the full report will be released to the public. Trump failed at his own self-declared deadline of having a million coronavirus tests available. 
Vice President Mike Pence had said that 1.5 million tests would be going out. The number is apparently many multiples smaller, with hospitals and doctors expressing frustration over that delay. Trump signed an $8.3 billion emergency funding bill to fight the coronavirus. Several right-wing lawmakers protested against the bill, claiming it was unnecessary. Florida Representative Matt Goetz signed the bill in a gas mask. Later in the day, it was revealed a constituent of his had died from COVID-19. In a related story, the coordinator of USA's Global Engagement Center testified to Congress that Russian actors were trying to take advantage of a health crisis, where people are terrified worldwide to try to advance their own priorities. Liga Gabrielle said the Russians were using state proxy websites, state-owned media, and fake accounts online. Russia was apparently responsible for nearly 2 million tweets over a three-week period pushing coronavirus-related conspiracies. Trump claimed on TV the global mortality rate for the virus is a false number. Trump said his hunch is that the real figure is way under 1%. Thousands or hundreds of people might have recovered, you know, by sitting around and even going to work. Some of them go to work, but they get better. Trump then called the virus a new hoax, trying to hurt his re-election. The global mortality rate for COVID-19 is around 4%. Trump also claimed he had, quote, a natural ability to understand the coronavirus outbreak, saying, quote, people are really surprised I understand this stuff. Every one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? In fact, staffers have had to explain the concept of antibodies to Trump multiple times, including once in a public press conference, and that he doesn't seem to grasp vaccine testing or the manufacture of antibodies. Russia has also stepped up efforts to inflame racial tensions in the United States, including trying to incite violence by white supremacist groups. Russia previously used social media and the Black Lives Matter movement to sow division among Democrats in 2016. Russia's aim is apparently to depress voter turnout, which Russia sees as beneficial to aiding its preferred candidate, which is Trump. Day 1143, March 7th. Trump claimed that the coronavirus outbreak was contained in the United States. That statement came as the number of cases doubled overnight and California and New York declared emergencies. The state of Illinois has declared a disaster. The CDC has refused to say publicly how many people have been tested for the virus. Trump flack Kellyanne Conway told a reporter, quote, it being the coronavirus is being contained. When a journalist suggested this was not true, Conway responded, quote, are you a doctor aware of it not being contained? Trump then canceled a trip to CDC headquarters in Atlanta after a suspected coronavirus case was found there. The White House claimed the trip was axed, quote, because the president does not want to interfere with the CDC's mission to protect the health and welfare of their people. CDC staffers only learned about the potential coronavirus case after Trump mentioned it to reporters. Trump's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, claimed the outbreak looks relatively contained and that the U.S. economy is fundamentally sound. However, Trump is considering slashing payroll taxes and bailing out certain sectors. Airlines have been hit especially hard. More than 1,000 planes have been taken out of service. Airline stocks have fallen 28%. The Trump Organization charged the Secret Service $157,000 more than was previously known and billed taxpayers for rooms at his clubs at much higher rates than the company claimed. New documents show Trump's company has charged the Secret Service at least $628,000 since he took office. The full scope of those payments, however, is unknown, as the Secret Service, under direction from the Treasury, has refused to release complete accountings. Most presidents have provided space for free to the Secret Service. Both of Trump's sons have repeatedly claimed the Secret Service stays for free when providing protection. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar called the coronavirus a very serious public health threat 
and added that nobody is trying to minimize this. Six minutes later, Trump downplayed the severity of the coronavirus and compared it to, quote, the common flu, tweeting, think about that. Trump added that he likes that people are now staying in the United States, spending their money in the U.S. They're sort of enforced doing that. Day 1144, March 8th. Blackwater founder Eric Prince, who was the brother of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, recruited former U.S. and British spies to infiltrate American liberal groups. Working with the controversial Project Veritas, Prince apparently tried to infiltrate the American Federation of Teachers and the AFL-CIO, as well as several Democratic congressional campaigns. It was strongly implied that Prince acted at the behest of Trump, targeting groups that have expressed opposition to his policies. Veritas has used hidden cameras and microphones, as well as selective and misleading editing, in sting operations. The Trump Foundation gave $20,000 to Project Veritas. The AFT is now suing Veritas for industrial espionage. That case is headed to trial in Michigan. Trump plans to collect DNA samples from undocumented immigrants held in detention facilities. These samples will be put into a database operated by the FBI for authorities to use to identify and locate violent criminals or in the country illegally. Trump told Vice President Mike Pence not to compliment Washington Governor Jay Inslee during the coronavirus crisis, quote, because he is a snake. Inslee, a one-time presidential candidate, has sharply criticized Trump's response to the outbreak. Inslee's state has seen 17 deaths from the virus. House Democrats asked a federal appeals court to reconsider enforcing a congressional subpoena for Trump's former White House counsel, Don McGahn. An appeals court panel had ruled two to one the House may not ask judges to force the White House to make McGahn available for testimony. House lawyers have argued that blocking lawmakers from suing to obtain information from the executive branch would leave Congress with little choice but, quote, to ask its sergeant-at-arms to arrest current and former executive branch officials for failing to respond to subpoenas. William Barr intervened in a key immigration asylum case by narrowing the definition of torture for asylum seekers. Barr overruled a decision made by the Board of Immigration Appeals and set a binding precedent in an attempt to deny asylum to a Mexican national who had said he was tortured as grounds for staying in the United States. Facebook removed ads from Trump's re-election campaign that urged people to, quote, respond now to an official congressional district census. Facebook said the ads violated its policies to prevent confusion around the official U.S. Census. Facebook, however, has refused to remove demonstrably false political content. And Trump tweeted out a picture of him playing the violin with the caption, quote, my next piece is called, Nothing Can Stop What's Coming. The bizarre tweet instantly drew comparisons to the famous image of Roman despot Nero fiddling while Rome burned. Day 1145, March 9th. The stock market plunged with fears over the coronavirus, with the S&P 500 entering bear territory. The index has lost 18% since last month. The market swoon is being exacerbated by a sudden oil war between Saudi Arabia and Russia that has hacked nearly $50 off the price of a barrel of crude. Trump attempted to play down the virus again, claiming it was contained. Reports now show he's actually had a number of personal contacts with infected patients. Trump had contact with three Republican congressmen before they self-quarantined themselves after learning they had been exposed to someone diagnosed with the coronavirus at the CPAC. Matt Getz was in contact with a person at CPAC who has since been diagnosed with the virus. Representative Doug Collins was also in contact. Senators Ted Cruz and Representative Paul Gosar also announced they would self-quarantine after coming into contact with that person. Gosar and Getz previously threw a fit on the floor of the House during an appropriations bill to get money to fight the virus, claiming it was unnecessary. 
Trump personally overruled health officials who wanted to warn Americans to avoid commercial airlines. The CDC had recommended that elderly and medically vulnerable Americans avoid flying as a way to control the outbreak. Later, the CDC quietly updated its website to tell older adults, quote, to stay home as much as possible and to avoid crowds. Trump suddenly fired Mick Mulvaney and replaced him with Representative Mark Meadows as his next White House Chief of Staff. Mulvaney, who is the acting Chief of Staff, will become the Special Envoy to Northern Ireland. Meadows immediately went into quarantine. He is now the fifth Republican lawmaker over fears of coronavirus contamination. U.S. intelligence says the Taliban has no intention of honoring the peace deal Trump brokered. It views the peace process as a way of securing the withdrawal of, quote, American occupiers, after which it will attack the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan. Trump acknowledged that the Taliban could possibly overrun the government. Countries have to take care of themselves, however. You can only hold someone's hand for so long. Trump then tweeted his wall is going up fast. We need the wall more than ever, implying it would help stop the flow of coronavirus. This is false. Out of the blue, Trump attacked Obama again, claiming falsely that, quote, the Obama-Biden administration is the most corrupt administration in the history of our country. Trump then accused the New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo of attempting political weaponization of the coronavirus crisis after the governor declared a state of emergency in his state. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar responded that Cuomo, quote, has actually been a really good partner working with Trump officials to contain the virus. Day 1146, March 10th. Italy locked down its entire nation of 60 million people in an unprecedented attempt to contain the COVID-19 virus. The nation also canceled all schools until April 3rd. That lockdown means citizens will not be able to travel within regions or to leave the country. The effect of the lockdown on Italy, which is a major European hub, remains to be seen. Trump sent a tax plan to Republican lawmakers with a 0% payroll tax rate that would last through the November election. Trump called the meeting great and said there was tremendous unity. In fact, Mitch McConnell called the plan a non-starter. Speaker Nancy Pelosi proposed an alternate economic stimulus package to give workers access to free coronavirus tests and paid sick leave. That plan seems to have more legs. A payroll tax cut would badly deplete the Treasury. The Trump administration ordered immigration courts to remove all coronavirus warning posters from courtrooms and waiting areas. After the Miami Herald wrote about that order, which told all clerks and judges to take down posters, warning people about the pandemic and telling people to practice proper hand sanitation, the Justice Department responded and claiming these signs shouldn't have been removed. And Trump claimed that, quote, everything is working out and that the coronavirus will go away, just stay calm. There are now more than 800 cases of coronavirus in the USA, including 27 deaths. Trump then claimed that the consumer has never been in a better position than they are right now, despite wild gyrations in the stock market and people being warned to avoid crowded spaces. Day 1147, March 11th. The COVID-19 virus, which has now killed more than 4,000 people worldwide, is officially a pandemic. Stocks plunged again as fears grew over Trump's inadequate response to the outbreak. That combined with the news that 70% of all Germans are now at risk of infection, and the recommendation in the United States that all NBA games close their doors to crowds sent the markets into freefall. There is tremendous pressure now on the NCAA, which will have its major tournament, to do the same. The top public health official, Tony Fauci, who is a highly respected nonpartisan, said bluntly, this is going to get worse. In Democratic primaries last night, Joe Biden won big again, giving Bernie Sanders' campaign a hammer blow. Biden won Michigan and three other states and is in a dead heat with Washington. 
Biden's primary sweep showed surprising depth with an active multiracial coalition. Turnout was also very high, reflecting a pent-up desire among Democrats to beat Trump. Young people, however, did not turn out to vote for Sanders again, illustrating the weakness of his group. In what would be a major disruption, the Treasury Department is considering postponing the tax deadline. Normally, filings are due April 15th, but the Treasury is reportedly, quote, concerned about the ability of the IRS to provide taxpayer assistance and to process returns. Tax prep specialists are being impacted by the coronavirus outbreak. New York State has walled off the city of New Rochelle in a dramatic attempt to stanch the spread of coronavirus in that state. New York's Governor Cuomo sent in National Guard troops in what is believed to be the nation's biggest single cluster of coronavirus outbreak cases, saying the virus could expand exponentially if not contained. 173 people in that state have been diagnosed with coronavirus. 19 have now been affected here in Illinois, and Chicago's massive St. Patrick's Day parades have both been canceled. Hundreds of thousands of federal workers may have to work from home full-time to limit exposure to the coronavirus. The Office of Personnel Management is seeing if the 2.1 million employees under their jurisdiction actually can telecommute. In a blow to Trump, an appeals court ruled the House has a right to see secret grand jury evidence gathered in the Rush investigation. The verdict is a victory for Congress's power to gather information for impeachment. Trump is likely to appeal. The House is investigating if Trump perjured himself. Out of the blue, Trump postponed an annual intelligence report without comment that warns that America is unprepared for a global pandemic. The report said in part, quote, the U.S. will remain vulnerable to the next flu pandemic or large-scale outbreak of contagious disease that could lead to massive rates of death and disability, severely affecting world economy, strain international resources, and increase calls on America for support. Trump has raised in private that his rallies are being affected by the coronavirus. While other candidates have canceled large outdoor gatherings, Trump wants to continue hosting people, calling virus fears a hoax. One-third of all Senate-confirmed civilian positions at the DOD are now vacant or filled by temporary officials. This is a record high. 60% of Republicans said they have not altered their daily routines because of the coronavirus. 60% of Democrats said they have. These are the Trump Diaries. Anyu rolled into Studio C for a John Daly session. It was produced by our buddy Corey Elbritton for Search and Research.
Right now, there are about five, um, uh, about five uh, wandering aldermen who are uh, from previous years who are still alive, not including Deacon Delphi, who is still the current wandering alderman. So six in total, um, and all of them uh, have effectively uh, began living in the uh, in the East Indiana Dunes following their election process. This is a a life-changing process to go through, uh, no less because of the experience that a wandering alderman will have in the hidden neighborhoods of Chicago. The hidden neighborhoods of Chicago are really the end-all, be-all of this whole campaign. Um, anytime any resident of known Chicago uh, spends in hidden Chicago is, uh, I mean, almost from a from a surprising, a, a, a very horrible, uh, horrible metric, uh, takes uh, off roughly every every minute that somebody spends in in the hidden neighborhood uh it can be linked to taking off a day from somebody's life in, in the grand scheme i mean data is sort of confusing especially when it comes to uh the hidden neighborhoods but uh it does seem that a surprising number of people that have gone to the hidden neighborhoods and specifically um a surprising number of wandering aldermen live fast and loose lives that are riddled with a great despair following their following their run um and it's very i mean it's just very at least relieving to see the that everybody that has been elected to wandering alderman has at least been able to uh ha- has been able to carry that burden following their following their term uh with great poise and i mean class uh so to speak the Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.